everybody, Essa is here today to bring you another exciting podcast. Co-hosting with me is Josh. What do we have in store for this time, Josh? Thanks, Amber. Today, we are extremely fortunate to have Professor Jenny Williams to join us. Jenny is a professor in the Department of Economics here at the University of Melbourne. Prior to joining the University of Melbourne, Jenny held an appointment at the University of Adelaide and a visiting appointment at the University of Illinois. She completed her undergraduate studies at the Australian National University before moving to Rice University to complete her graduate studies and PhD. Welcome, Jenny. How are you going today? Hey, Josh. Hey, Amber. Yeah, I'm doing all right. (laughs) How are you? That's awesome. Um, Yeah, I'm going really well as well. Um, So maybe to start things off for today, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe what, what your research field is, and also we'd love to hear what inspired you to first study and research economics. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a professor in the Department of Economics in the Faculty of Business and Economics, and I teach econometric subjects, and the econometric subjects I teach are very applied in nature because that's the great strength of econometrics, bringing together data and the frameworks of economics to ask and answer really important policy questions. And to me, that's what is interesting and inspiring about this field of econometrics. And that's why I work in the area. In particular, I really like that economics provides frameworks to understand the world around you and why people, businesses and policymakers make the decisions that they make. And economic theory provides frameworks or disciplines in how you think about very complex and interrelated problems and issues. And I think that economics is quite different to other disciplines in that it does understand the linkages between different aspects of decision making. So, for example, you can't just focus on health. In a pandemic, there are economic consequences. And if you want people to stay at home and they would not be able to provide an income for their family, then you actually have to support them doing that financially. Their choices are constrained and the impacts of policies can fill over into domains that you're not actually targeting with the policy. So understanding those linkages and connections are really important. Yeah, and those are some really interesting insights into econometrics. And just from my perspective as an um, undergraduate student, as you're talking about just actually using the tools of econometrics to sort of find out causal relationships in the real world. And really, we learn a lot of economic theory in our first and second years, but then in terms of actually understanding how that applies to the real world, definitely the tools in econometrics and I guess your specialty in microeconometrics are super interesting. And I guess building on that too, maybe for those listeners out there who are not so familiar with regression analysis, Would you be able to briefly explain how econometric models were used relate to machine learning? Oh, sure, Josh. That's a really good question. And yes, I'm hoping it'll be interesting for your listeners because, in fact, the machine learning methods and the microeconometric methods I use are entirely complementary methods of using data to understand processes that end affect change. So, for example, machine learning sifts through vast quantities of data to find patterns and correlation using some criteria that we select. And then they can use from identifying patterns and correlations that those patterns and correlations are useful for identifying and classifying phenomena. For example, identifying and classifying breast cancers, what kind of breast cancer you have, and therefore what is the optimal treatment, or for identifying geographic locations that are particularly crime-prone, because if you can identify crime-prone locations, then you can have policing that has police officers stay there. While these machine learning techniques can be used to identify and classify the type of cancers, 
or can identify locations that are particular crime hotspots and therefore where to concentrate your scarce resources in order to achieve your desired outcomes. Machine learning cannot, in general, tell you what causes individuals to engage in crime and therefore how to reduce offending, and it cannot tell you what causes breast cancer and therefore how to prevent breast cancer. So there's a distinction between correlations and causation. Where if you need to be effective with the resources you have, with policing, you want to put it where the crime occurs and hope that they don't move to another location (laughs) where your police officers are. But there are some locations that have geographic advantage for conducting criminal activities, right? And so they're the ones where you tend to want to put your police. Big open spaces where you have no privacy, not a good area necessarily for engaging in crime. So the machine learning will tell you where to put your police officers have the maximum impact to reduce crime and your machine learning can help you identify and classify different kinds of breast cancers and therefore ensure you get the most beneficial treatment and so therefore you have a targeted treatment that focus on the type of cancer that you have and that will maximize the return for the resources that you have. But I use econometric tools and what econometric tools and estimators do is they identify causal relationships. So just keep in mind the big picture goal is the same as machine learning. It's to better understand how to allocate resources to improve outcome. Well, according to an economist, that's the big picture. But the small picture goal is very different because In econometrics, we want to identify causal relationships using observational data. So, for example, if there's a strong relationship between substance use and mental ill health, we need to know to what extent is substance use a cause or a consequence of mental ill health. That is, those with mental illnesses might be using substances to ease their symptoms or it might be that their symptoms are a result of their substance use. And it's really important for policymakers to understand the difference between those because they need to understand whether the substance use is occurring a harm or whether it's actually reducing symptoms and actually beneficial. And we know that this is really important. Like, for example, with I think it's cannabis oil. It's very good for treating chronic pain, whereas opioids are not good at treating chronic pain. They're good for acute pain. But opioids are used for treating chronic pain and they're just not effective and people become addictive to opioid use but there's evidence that in fact using cannabis allows people who would otherwise be using opioids to actually return to work and be more functional so there is growing evidence that cannabis actually has beneficial health effects but for whom and under what circumstances and we really need to understand these things and so that's the distinction between machine learning it it identifies correlations and patterns in the data but it's not going to tell you why and therefore if you know why then you can look at changing what outcomes are so econometrics microeconometrics looks to understand the why you know is cannabis use causing mental ill health or is cannabis use being used to treat mental ill health all we know is that they're correlated people who have poor mental health have higher cannabis use but it's not clear with the mental ill health is a cause or consequence of the cannabis use. And that's something you can't distinguish using machine learning. That's a sort of question you need to draw on causal analysis using microeconometrics. You've given us a lot of food for thought when it comes to correlations versus causality. I do recall in one of my prior econometric subjects, there was this really funny website where it showed, you know, the strangest correlations, for example, relating chocolate consumption to the number of Nobel Prizes won by a given country. You know, you can see patterns in the way the data moves together, but it's not necessarily the case that one causes the other. It's just 
it's a pattern that you see in the data. So it's quite astounding a few of the things that economics presents to us. And coming back to your point of predictive policing, so a very hot topic that has had its trial applications in the US, and they've run into this problem where policymakers want to use machine learning based systems that are not subject to historical bias because from a legal standpoint, it raises questions of fairness to certain minority groups. And this ties really well into you know, a lot of the causality versus correlation stuff that you were talking about. So how do we as economists get around this issue where models and statistics used from this data do not exacerbate the biases in that data so that policy recommendations can be forward looking? Is it really the role for economists to do this? Oh, absolutely. That's where we come to the fore. And I think that it's a really good point that you raise, especially with criminal justice, understanding the distinction between correlations and causations is really high stake for society and sense of fairness. So, for example, with regards to, I think it's especially in the US, predictive policing is is quite a popular idea. But if you just want to look at correlations, you do run into these problems. And I'm going to give you an example also from the US, which is that US research has shown that although not required to, judges who make decisions about remanding or releasing offenders who have been charged but not convicted of a crime typically require a monetary bond, a bail. And often, typically, Black Americans can't afford the sum that is required to be released on bail. And so they end up being remanded into custody. And and this is even when the bail is set at what we might consider relatively low sums. So because Black Americans end up being remanded into custody when they haven't been convicted of a crime, but simply because they are not able to access bond and bail, then when their case is due to go to court, they're likely to accept a plea bargain in which they plead guilty in return for a sentence of time served. Now, this is presented to them as a win-win situation because their case will be done and dusted and they'll be released and they've saved the public purse, the cost of their trial. And so it's sort of like a win-win situation. That's sort of how it's presented to them, that there's something in it for you, there's something in it for us. But the consequence of them pleading guilty is that upon release, the time served, they find themselves with a criminal conviction and have difficulty finding a job. Now, this places them at greater risk of reoffending, so the revolving prison door turns and they find themselves back in prison. So given the data on race and reoffending, you would predict that black offenders have higher chances of reoffending and you might take this then suggest that you should take this into account as a judge uh, sentencing. But this result this higher reoffending is not reflecting the individual's proclivity or criminality. It's simply reflecting the sentencing decisions, their lack of access to bail and bond. It, it reflects their disadvantage, not their criminal proclivities. And so any sentencing decisions based on associations in this data would not be justified and they would not reduce crime. And one of the purposes of sentencing is to reduce re-offending, sending a signal to others about, about the costs of engaging in crime and to the individual that you're sentencing. Don't do this again. You'll get punished. But the sentence can't serve that purpose if it's being based on these, <laughs> these correlations that are due to inherent biases, institutional biases. Now, In my own research, for example, I study criminal justice outcomes and I've looked at how different forms of punishment impact on reoffending in Australia. 
So, for example, in New South Wales, non-violent offenders who are sentenced to a prison term of no more than 18 months may serve their prison sentence at home under home detention rather than in prison. And so what happens is you slap an electronic monitoring bracelet on them and so the individuals are sentenced to home detention but they are monitored to make sure they don't leave their home and the patient is tracked with an electronic monitoring bracelet. Now, as such, home detention actually provides a a low-cost means of depriving offenders of their liberty. And so it's much cheaper. And if they're not violent offenders, you really want to reserve prison for, for people who are putting the community at imminent risk of violence, I would have thought. So you would think that non-violent offenders, home detention is a really good solution. But one concern is that if you allow offenders to serve their prison term at home rather than in prison, that might be perceived as a soft or lesser punishment and therefore not deter the offender from committing future crimes and may not deter other offenders who observe this home detention as a considered softer punishment. And so using uh, home detention may lead to a higher rate of offending than would have occurred had you just used a prison sentence. So there's this good policy reason to consider using home detention, but there's also good policy concerns that suggest, well, maybe we shouldn't rush into this. So this is a, a case where you need to establish what's the causal impact of serving a sentence under home detention rather than in prison. Does it lead to higher offending? Does it lead to no change in offending or does it reduce offending? It may well reduce offending because if you're not in prison, you're not learning about new different skills, you're not increasing your criminal networks. And importantly, and I really want to stress this, the home detention programs are really focused on rehabilitation and rehabilitation while offenders are in the community. And so if they sort of fell over or had a problem or had a challenge, which happens when you're, you know, in the real world, they had a lot of support to address those concerns, whether it be anger management, um, substance abuse treatment, um, job training, uh, so it's a, it was a very supported program. Uh, so you might think that it could reduce reoffending rather than just putting parking someone in prison for six months, have them in home detention, have them in treatment for substance use, have them in training programs so they can uh, access employment. Now, it's not easy to establish the causal impact of serving a sentence under home detention when the alternative is serving a sentence in prison, and that's because judges are going to select candidates for home detention who they think are low risk of reoffending. So if you just compare, if you just look at correlations, if you compare reoffending rates in the group that serves a sentence of home detention and the group that serves their sentence in prison, they're different people. The people who go to prison are the ones you think are going to reoffend. The people who you give home detention you think are less likely to reoffend. So you, you don't want to confound the um, risk of inherent risk of reoffending of the individuals with the impact of the punishment of how the sentence is served. So we need to disentangle these effects and that's where we're using microeconometrics comes in. And I use this approach, which is quite popular now. It's based on random assignment of judges to cases within a court case and the fact that judges have distinct proclivities for punishments they use. So, for example, Amber Suppose you and Josh recently have been charged and you're due to go to court. You're identical in all relevant regards in terms of offending history and current charges that you're, you have before the courts. But Amber, your judge, Judge A, is known to not use home detention. But Josh, he's heard by Judge B and Judge B is known to sometimes use home detention. And so Josh is more likely than Amber to serve a sentence under home detention and Amber's more likely to go to prison. And this is due to the randomness of the judge who hears the case. 
and the proclivities and tastes of the judge. But here's the case. Now, this randomness in the assignment of home detention, which is reflecting the randomness of the assignment of judges and judges' tastes, allow us to disentangle the impact of receiving home detention rather than imprisonment on reoffending from other unobserved characteristics of the individual that determine their reoffending. Right. So it's this. It sort of breaks this this confounding by having this random assignment of judge and judges have tastes and judges have personalities and some like to use home detention when appropriate and others do not. And just by virtue of the fact that with the luck of the draw, who your judge is, you, Amber, are going to be more likely to go to prison than Josh. And because Josh doesn't go to prison, there's this random assignment that's not to do with his reoffending or your reoffending that allows us to work out the causal impact of electronic home detention with electronic monitoring on reoffending, And so I find that home detention leads to lower rates of reoffending, and this reduction in reoffending is still present 10 years after court cases have been finalised. I just want to make it clear that these economics and econometrics allow you to ask and answer really policy-relevant questions. And I want to highlight how important I think these sort of results are for policy. The annual cost of prisons in Australia was more than $4.77 billion in 2018-19. Australia really punches above its weight in the world when it comes to incarceration. Each prisoner costs on average $302 a day, which exceeds the average daily earnings, which is about $264 a day. It costs a lot to imprison people. But my research shows that we can reduce the size of the prison population and reduce reoffending by using home detention for non-violent offenders. So it's a win-win situation. So to answer your original question, should economists be in this space, what do we have to offer? I say, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> yes, we economists have so much to offer in terms of being able to use data to provide policy advice that is reliable and robust. It's not correlations, it's causation. But to do so, these, these tools require careful use of microeconometric techniques and you really have to understand the institutional setting and really leverage off the institutional setting. But that's a good thing, right? You need to know what you're talking about. If you want to talk about criminal justice policy, you should understand those institutions. And this is exactly what many empirical microeconomists do. And it's really fascinating how you seem to take a very deep look into examining these outcomes. And I remember in one of our former legal readings, they found that judges that, you know, had lunch before sentencing somebody were more likely to provide lenient sentences and it's, it's pretty amazing to hear how you know all these behavioral biases amazing but also quite concerning to some extent in terms of fairness but going back to statistical models and a lot of the stuff that you do day to day what are the other main statistical challenges that you've come to face when doing any empirical research with regression models well, identifying causal effects is a constant challenge. I want to tell you about another project I have, which I think is another really big, important area. So I think criminal justice is a really big, important area. And another project I'm currently working on, I think is a really big, important area, is understanding an issue which arises in universal healthcare systems. Now, universal healthcare systems are systems where health is publicly provided at low or zero cost out-of-pocket costs to the person receiving treatment is paid through right, taxes or national insurance. It's in the UK, most OECD countries in Australia, we have Medicare. So that's a universal public health care system. So as you would know, and as your listeners would 
No. When the price paid for a good or service is zero or close to zero and you have capacity constraints, you end up with excess demand. And this is true in healthcare markets, just as it is with other markets. And as a consequence, when you can't use price as a rationing mechanism in the context of healthcare, waiting lists and waiting times are used as the mechanism to ration healthcare. But it's unclear what the optimal waiting time is. Now, in some ways, it looks like if people are waiting, it's not costing the government anything because they're not using services. Great system. But of course, if you're waiting for treatment, your health gets worse. And if your health gets worse, you might require longer or more expensive kinds of health interventions. But it's really hard to measure the costs of waiting. In addition, there's a confounding factor also here in that in many systems, patients are prioritised on the wait list based on the severity of their illness. So those with worse health are treated first. They're put you know, higher up the list. They have to wait, but they wait less than people who at the time of assessment are not in such ill health. So as a consequence, you can't measure the impact of or the costs of waiting by comparing those who don't wait very long with those who wait a long time because those who waited longer had better underlying health at the time where they were assessed for treatment. So there are lots of areas, especially increasingly healthcare is delivered in an outpatient setting and people in outpatient settings wait very long time for treatment often, but In economics, most of the studies have looked at hip replacements or coronary surgery where the outcome, a bad outcome is you die, you know, or you spend, you know, longer term in hospital or you return to hospital more quickly. But most, I think most treatment, a lot of important treatment, for example, mental health treatment, substance use treatment are delivered outpatient, in an outpatient setting. And it's less clear how you measure the costs of waiting or the consequences, the health consequences of waiting. So I've been developing a strategy to identify the causal effects of waiting to access treatment in the context of outpatient care for cannabis use disorder. And uh, the data I'm using is from Norway. I have a wonderful Norwegian co-author. And the cannabis use patients are really, don't think of them as weekend, having a bit of pot on the weekend. These are patients that are very marginalised and very vulnerable. And they have seven times the likelihood of being treated for a mental health disorder over a five-year period compared to um, a matched sample from the Norwegian population. So this issue of if people are very vulnerable, very marginalised, it's a very salient group for which understanding the costs and consequences of waiting for treatment, to study this and really understanding the, the costs and consequences of waiting for treatment. So my findings, I think, are really super interesting and, and policy relevant. For example, in this setting of in, in Norway, looking at cannabis use patients who are waiting for outpatient treatment, I find that each additional day spent waiting for treatment increases the time spent in treatment by more than a day and that patients who wait the average amount of time to access outpatient treatment for cannabis use disorder are 30% less likely to have completed their treatment 12 months after entering treatment and 15% less likely to have completed their treatment 24 months after entering treatment compared to a person who didn't wait. Now, not only does delayed entry into treatment due to waiting times increase the duration of time under treatment, it also increases the intensity of treatment. And that's because, of course, these people, they might not have been in terribly ill health at the time that they were assessed, and that's why they get a longer waiting time. But after you wait several months, your health deteriorates. And as a consequence, you need more intense interventions and a greater duration of treatment. So, for example, 12 months after entering treatment, the the patients who waited the average amount of wait time, they had used 57% more consultations than a person who did not wait. And after 24 months, 
they've used almost 75% more consultations than the person who didn't wait. And so I want to reiterate again the importance of distinguishing between causation and correlation because if you just use simple ordinary least squares regression, you find that patients who wait the average time to access treatment are slightly more likely to have completed treatment 12 or 24 months after entering treatment compared to someone who doesn't wait. And that's because patients who were in better health at the time of assessment were given a low priority and so they waited longer to access treatment. So OLS is confounding the initial better health status which led them to have a low prioritisation and long waiting list, waiting time. It's confounding their better health status when they're assessed with the adverse impacts of waiting for treatment. So if you have, they're in better treatment, so they should be in better health when they're assessed, they should actually have a shorter time in treatment. But what you find is that is then being undone by the fact that they had to wait and their health deteriorate and they need, in fact, more intense treatment and longer durations of treatment. Now, they almost cancel out when you look at OLS. They're slightly more likely to have exited after 12 or 24 months, but that's really hiding the fact that their health is deteriorated and so they're actually needing much more treatment than they would have if they'd been able to access it in a timely way. And so what this shows is that wait time to access outpatient treatment for cannabis use disorder increases the use of healthcare services at both the extensive and intensive margin and so actually adds to the burden of the healthcare sector. So they use more resources and they use them more intensely. And it's important for policymakers to know this because it suggests that a reallocation of resources within the healthcare sector or perhaps from the outside the health sector to inside, so just increasing resources to the health sector to boost capacity for cannabis use disorder could improve overall welfare. And I guess like another aspect of your research that sounds really, really fascinating is the fact that it's both like highly consequential in terms of creating policy outcomes and really informing better policies and also intrinsically interesting in terms of being able to find out causal relationships in the real world. Changing gears a little bit from like from a student's perspective, particularly say undergraduate economic students who I assume will be the bulk of our listeners, what would be your number one tip for students as they enter into the workforce? That's a really good question because it really will be changing gears in a big way for people as they transition from university to the workforce. And I thought about this question because it's a long time since I've done that, but actually being in COVID lockdown has really changed my life. And so that, so I thought about what it used to be like to be in the workforce when I was when the workforce was a functioning place. And I think my first tip would be to recognise and take up opportunities to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. For me, being outside my comfort zone, doing things, I'm, you know, like I'm a bit shy, you know, I find it really challenging to give seminars, but it's really important because there's no point in doing this research if I don't tell people about it. I mean, you hope to publish it in journals, but there's a lot of things that I personally find challenging. But if you put yourself outside your comfort zone, it allows you to grow and it shows you what you're truly capable of and it provides you an opportunity to learn what you really enjoy. And I really enjoy my research and I think that it's really important to push yourself to explore, to taste, to try different things within the job that you get. Take up opportunities that you're offered. You know, say yes, even if you think, oh, I'm not sure that it's really me. Learn, learn. You don't really know. It's like food unless you try new kinds of food. You don't really know whether you're going to like it or not. And the second thing that I want to say is that in all aspects of life, including work, to always be on the lookout for role models, you know, people who you think, oh, I like the way they did that or that makes a real difference the way they, they did that. And look for people who exhibit 
leadership in a way that you value and appreciate. It might take some time to work out what you really value and admire in leaders and role models. And you know, it's okay to think, I like the way that person A handles these situations because it reassures people or it gives them confidence and then they perform better. But in other situations, you might prefer how B does it because sometimes people just need to get their butts kicked and they need to know where the line is. And that if, if they don't do their bit, then it impacts the whole team. So It's okay to say, I like the way person A does this and the way that person B does that. You don't have to have one person that does all things because everyone has different strengths and everyone has different styles and you need to decide what you're, given who you are, what strengths and styles are going to suit you the most. So take your time, collect ideas, identify attributes and values of leaders with a view to developing the leader within yourself. And I think this is important because, you know, you are smart. Anyone at Melbourne University, you are smart. Everyone at Melbourne University is smart. You have to be smart to get a seat in the place. But being smart is who you already are. The question is, once you leave here, who will you become and what will you contribute? And I want to encourage you to move a little outside your comfort zone, learn about yourself, think about what leadership might look like for you as you progress and transition into your post-university life. Totally. And those are really good words you've left us and listeners to really reflect upon. Uh, I couldn't help but have an image of, you know, the movie Yes Ma'am with Jim Carrey in it. (laughs) I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. (laughs) It's hilarious. It's pretty much Jim Carrey being his usual, you know, comedic character and he says yes to everything. It's, It's funny, but it also goes to show how much opportunity presents to him as he, you know, says yes and it give you a couple of chuckles I'm sure I think I think some people say no because they think oh I can't do that or do you know what I mean and something might not be your interest but you shouldn't say no because you think you can't do it they're offering you that opportunity because they think you can do it and they'll support you doing it so yeah that's what I mean about it's okay to say yes to things outside your comfort zone you don't know if you don't try (laughs) gotta be in it to win it (laughs) Definitely. So thank you so much, Professor Jenny, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to shine some light into a bit about yourself and also the research that you've been doing recently. And especially in these COVID times, it's really great to hear from your your professors and it's just great to stay connected. So thank you so much. So for you listeners out there, we hope you really enjoyed this week's podcast and we hope you stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.